My name is Matt Sickett, and uh, I'm going to roll you through some neurologic emergencies in the next 50 minutes. And uh, I want to take all the time that I can, so let's just go ahead and get started. Um, first of all, thanks for being here. Uh, I don't know what's brought you here, whether neurologic emergencies is your thing, or maybe it's absolutely not your thing. And if that's the case, uh, I think that's all the more reason to attend. So I'm really happy to see uh, the, the neuro talks this year getting uh, such an interest, and hopefully, uh, hopefully you find this useful. So I have nothing to disclose. So what are we going to do? Well, in the next 50 minutes, we're going to go through seven cases. So it's going to be fairly rapid fire. I want to kind of race you through. Can't hear me? How about now? A little. All right. Is that better? All right, you didn't miss much, just the introductory stuff. All right, well, let's go ahead. So we're going to talk about seven cases, five of them being absolute uh, devastating neurologic emergencies, which can present subtly and are easily missed by us in the emergency department. And then the last two are seemingly benign conditions uh, that we can mistakenly think are, are harmless, and these patients may have a catastrophic outcome, may progressively worsen. And so we need to know about them and we need to be able to uh, recognize them and, and know what the treatment strategies are. So, so why is this important? Well, I think we're really only as good as our differential diagnosis, right? And so there's some skill here to gain in our understanding of what these things are. These aren't things that we're going to regularly encounter. And I hope that that's ultimately what's brought you here as opposed to a difficult airway course or an ultrasound session, which are admittedly a lot more sexy than the subtle neurologic emergencies, but it's these things, I would argue, that you're not going to see commonly but need to be prepared for because they're potentially catastrophic uh, that we need to spend some time at conferences such as this focusing on. So I don't know if this resembles any of you. It's certainly me from time to time. I think that there's really a void in, in between emergency medicine and neurology. I often find this resembles the neurologist as well. He may be uncomfortable with the sights, sounds, and smells of the emergency department. We, admittedly, are often uncomfortable in the realm of subtle neurologic emergencies, right? We don't want to carry a reflex hammer. We don't want to take an exhaustive length of time to, to look for subtle abnormalities on a neurologic exam when we have a lot of competing priorities. Um, but I would argue that we need to learn to own the brain. And hopefully, at the end of this section, we're all going to feel a little bit more confident in that realm. Now, I'm not encouraging you to start carrying your tuning fork again. David Newman likes to say that anything that goes ping doesn't belong in the emergency department. And I, I tend to agree with him. But I think there is a little bit of subtle skill here that we need to learn to take advantage of. And hopefully, that's what we'll do with these cases. So let's get started. So case number one is that of a 48-year-old woman, and she presents with severe headache, vomiting, and a first-time seizure, okay? Here are her vital signs, and you can see she's hypertensive, but otherwise looks okay. Who's going to get a CAT scan in this case? First-time seizure, severe headache, show of hands. Okay, well, yeah, I, you can see that we did. Um, so, good, yeah, good call. So, uh, we got the CAT scan, and it's normal. All right, so what's next? First-time seizure, severe headache, nausea, vomiting, doesn't look great. Well, if you're at an academic medical center like me, you may hop on the phone and drag somebody else into this, right? So, so that's what we did in this case. We called neurology. We asked for a consult. And what 
what does, what's the neurology consult involved now, at least over the past couple of years? At my institution, everything begins with get an MRI, I'll be down after. And, you know, we're, we're fortunate enough in Rhode Island, we have a magnet in the emergency department, we keep it relatively warm. Many of us aren't that lucky, um, but in this case, that's exactly what we did. We went ahead and got an MRI, and, and there's the, 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 the yellow circle sign, which is good. But what does it show? So underneath, uh, what do we see? We see a little bit of, of hyperintensity on the T2 flare sequence, right? So what is that? So we've got a young woman, severe headache, vomiting, first ever seizure, she's got marked hypertension, and we see T2 flare abnormality on an MRI. Ringing in some bells? Yeah, I, I, I heard it, good. So this is PRESS, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, okay? Complicated acronym. Now what is it? So PRESS, it requires a trigger of some kind, usually a cytotoxic agent or a rapid change, rapid elevation in blood pressure. It's not necessarily the absolute number, it's just the delta blood pressure being high. Uh, eclampsia certainly can do this, as can the cytotoxic agents, leading to autoregulatory auto dysfunction. So there's a spiral of events that ensues, beginning with endothelial cell dysfunction, and once those uh, tight junctions between cells starts to break down, that's when we have the blood-brain barrier breakdown, and then a bad spiral. So there's brain swelling, ischemia and infarction, and even hemorrhage that can ensue thereafter. So here's a look at a case where there was, in fact, uh, an infarction. You see the cytotoxic edema in the posterior fossa on the DWI sequence, and it lights up on flare as well. So this is effectively hypertensive emergency, right? And people wonder, why posterior? Why do we see this posterior? Well, it's really just a function of evolution. It just so happens that the, the posterior fossa, we have a paucity of sympathetic innervation. And so if we're going to have autoregulatory failure, we're going to often see it first in the posterior circulation. So that can give you some hint in terms of the symptoms you'll see, but they're really all over the map. You're going to see hype, uh, headache, seizure, changes in mental status, uh, vision abnormalities, nausea and vomiting are all very frequent. Focal neurologic deficits, less frequent. You can see it, but I wouldn't have you rely on the presence of a focal deficit to make this diagnosis. What, what bothers me about PRESS is that reversible is in its name, and I feel like that's sort of inaccurate. I, when we see reversible, like transient ischemia, reversible encephalopathy, we get this sense that it's a benign condition, and we can sit back and relax because the patient's going to take care of him or herself. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Most patients do recover, but it can take up to one, two weeks for this to happen. And it's, there's, a, there's a high association of long-term sequelae, so a 16% short-term mortality and about a third of patients will have residual deficits in the long term. So over on the left, you see, uh, this is a large case series published some time ago. And on the y-axis, you see the severity of uh, MRI abnormalities, so neuroimaging abnormalities. And on the x-axis is the patient separated by a patient number. And on the left, you have the patients that recovered well. And on the right, you have those that, those that progressed on to stroke uh, or death. And, and if you separate those entirely, you see, yeah, that's about a third of patients. So very dangerous, not so benign. It needs to be in our forefront. So how do we make the diagnosis? Uh, well, you, you want a combination of a symptom, a risk factor, and then you want to get brain imaging, right? So any seizure or encephalopathy, presence of a headache or visual disturbance should raise your suspicion to some degree. If you have one of those, you're in. Then you look for the risk factor, and we've talked about a lot of them. 
severe hypertension, kidney dysfunction, uh, immunosuppressant or chemotherapy, or of course, eclampsia. Now, brain imaging isn't, doesn't need to be abnormal to make this diagnosis, um, but certainly you should have a low threshold to get it, and you should also exclude more dangerous diagnoses. Now, in terms of, this, of, the, of the imaging, how good is CT? Uh, well, you see it in this case. This was, this was a case presented by one of our residents, and it was pretty clear that you can see lots of vasogenic edema in the posterior fossa that lit up on the T2 flare sequence. But it's not that good overall. One case series showed about a sensitivity of 40% uh, for CT for press. So you want to have a low threshold to get an MRI in these patients. In terms of management, it really all begins with identifying and reversing the underlying cause. So you, you want to control blood pressure aggressively. You want to withdraw the toxic agent if this is eclampsia, emergent delivery. Um, if the patient needs dialysis, get them there. And then think about metabolic correction. So magnesium is one of those that's been implicated in this entity. And then, you know, treat underlying signs and symptoms. Treat their pain, any anticonvulsant procedure. And for blood pressure, I would advocate for uh, a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker and a continuous infusion, but it's really as per your institutional protocol for hypertensive emergency, right? All right. So I want you to think of press. If you've got the constellation of headache, seizure, hypertension, any posterior neurologic symptoms, and then I want you to search for the underlying trigger and have a low threshold to get an MRI. Okay? We good? All right. All right, so let's move on to case number two. This is that of a 40, uh, sorry, 54-year-old woman who presents with a thunderclap headache. Her vital signs, she's moderately hypertensive, otherwise okay. So thunderclap headache. So actually, the backstory, this is a real case. She uh, was walking out of an elevator and she felt a pop inside of her head. Not good, right? No. Um, but she actually, she was uh, taking ibuprofen and Tylenol aggressively uh, at home uh, and waited several days before coming to the emergency department. She was neurologically intact, but, but seemed fairly ill. So CT scan on her, yes, no? Yes? Yes, okay. So we did, we got a CT scan and it too was normal. And of course, we're concerned about subarachnoid hemorrhage in her so a lumbar puncture occurred next. And what did we see? Well, we had 12 RBCs in tube one and 15 in tube four. So not, certainly not terrible. Um, no xanthrochromia. Didn't really clear. Would we still be concerned? Okay, so right. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if, if it's just my, my place or if you do the same thing, but we got back on the phone. By the way, I, I do now realize that texting the consults on your iPhone is probably not a good idea. I need to change that. I have since been, been schooled. Um, okay, but this time we called neurosurgery, right? And we, what did they say? They said, get a CTA and don't expect me to come down. They, weren't, they, they admittedly weren't very excited about this case, uh, which isn't surprising, right? Right, it's not, it's not that exciting of a lumbar puncture. So we obliged, we got the, cats, uh, the CTA, and it looks like there's a little bit of something. So looking on the sagittal view, thank God for the green arrow this time, you can see there's segmental narrowing of the MCA and the ACA, right? Everybody see that? So there, is, this a, is this an elbow? Is this a large vessel occlusion and somebody that's just presenting with a thunderclap headache? No, this is something else. And, we're, we're, uh, we often don't have the follow-up studies, but I'll show you this for comparison. This was a repeat angiographic study 12 weeks later. So you can see uh, what was abnormal has now 
entirely normalized. So what is this? All right, so we have a 54-year-old woman, thunderclap headache, a normal CT scan, nearly normal lumbar puncture, and segmental narrowing on an angiographic study. Do we have it? This is RCVS, Reversible Cerebral Vasoconstriction Syndrome. Okay, our acronyms are getting a little bit harder. So what's RCVS? Well, it's same sort of thing. You need a, you need a trigger. This time it's a vasoconstrictive trigger of some kind. So again, a uh, lot uh, of drugs are implicated in this. These are, are the ergots and the uh, uh, serotonergic agents. But also anything that can cause sort of a catecholamine surge, a sympathomimetic, heavy exertion, delivery, um, sexual intercourse are all things that have been implicated here. And once you get that trigger, you get smooth muscle contraction in one specific area. Why one area and not diffuse isn't really well understood, at least not by me, but that's what causes the thunderclap headache and the symptoms. It's really characterized by, you see a sort of string and beads appearance on your angiographic study, which is pathognomonic for this entity. I think it's a great term that we now have because it, it lumps in all of these obscure neurologic diagnoses which really describe the same thing. Call Fleming syndrome, migraine angiitis, postpartum angiopathy, drug-induced vasospasm, and even primary thunderclap headache all describes RCVS. The key here is that it's sudden onset. So our thunderclap headache, right, this is, this is, not, this is different from the undifferentiated headache that you're working up in the emergency department. This is like, meat reaches its maximum intensity within a minute. Okay, this is a very dangerous cause. And of course, we're worried about aneurysmal subarachnoid, but second to subarachnoid, I would argue RCVS should be on the top of your differential. So it accounts maybe up to half of thunderclap headaches without an obvious cause when you first arrive. It's more common in women, and as opposed to press, focal deficits here are pretty common. Again, you've got focal narrowing of one artery, and so you're often gonna have deficits associated with that vascular territory. Again, kind of an inaccurate name, though. I'm glad there's a unifying diagnosis, but reversible is, you know, the first word, and I, I feel like it gives us a sense of false reassurance. This isn't something that is benign. Most patients do recover, but this is, on the right, the largest case series that I could find, and you could see that a good proportion of patients actually proceeded on to intracerebral hemorrhage or subarachnoid or ischemic stroke, and many progressed to press, which we know has a much higher mortality. So this needs to be a concern of ours. Death from RCVS specifically has been reported to be less than 1% typically. But, you know, many have some sort of effects, chronic headaches, uh, long-standing depression, some subtle deficits as a result, such as this patient who had a pretty large volume infarct on, on the MRI. So how to diagnose it? Well, we want, it, we want to think about it in anybody with an acute thunderclap headache, especially if there's a negative workup for subarach, right? LP, if you perform it, it's going to be normal or near normal. And this is important because this is often uh, confused with primary angiitis. And the difference here, other than in a brain biopsy, which I discourage, is, uh, is that these, aren't gonna, these patients aren't going to have an inflammatory picture, right? If you, if you get a sed rate and a CRP, they'll likely be normal. And if you do an LP, they're not going to have uh, abnormalities in the electrolytes and, and uh, pleocytosis, which you would see in an angiitis. 
In the angiographic study, you're going to see the, the focal narrowing, but these can be falsely negative in the beginning if you're not frustrated already. That's, and of course, you want to exclude aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage because there is a significant amount of overlap. So approaching these patients, I, I, I think we need, need to standardize our approach to the thunderclap headache a little bit differently than we would an undifferentiated headache in the emergency department. So here, we're having a low threshold to get an angio. Should we then think about it for all thunderclap headaches? And, and you've heard talks about revolutionizing our approach to headache in the ED and whether an LP is even indicated anymore in those presenting with uh, concern for subarachnoid hemorrhage. I know, I know Dave Newman said that it would take 733 negative LPs to diagnose one radiographically occult subarachnoid in the first few hours. But I would just say that the thunderclap headache doesn't end with subarachnoid, right? And so this really needs to enter your differential. If you, if you get it, the CTA up front, can this replace the LP? And, and I would say it's introduced some ethical dilemma now, right? We don't know what to do with some of these findings. If you see a, 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 an asymptomatic small aneurysm on a patient with a primary benign headache, what do we now do? And so I, I think this is still up for debate, and I'll let some of the other uh, people this week talk about it. But I just want it to be represented in the discussion when we talk about thunderclap headache. So how do we treat it? Again, number one, stop the trigger. There's usually always a trigger of some kind, and you want to remove that agent. Treat their symptoms. In terms of the spasm, a calcium channel blocker is the mainstay. Now, I'm not talking about nemotipine, so right? So in an aneurysmal subarach, you often are giving oral nemotipine to prevent downstream vasospasm. That doesn't seem to work in these patients. You're going to need to use an IV drug, so nicardipine is typically the way to go. A lot of the case series that have been published are on uh, eclamptic patients, and magnesium clearly has a role in these patients. Does it have a role for the non-eclamptic RCVS? Potentially. Um, so it's something to consider. I would say that it's harmless enough and seems to make it into um, a lot of treatments with loose indication, and this is no exception. Um, resist the urge to give glucocorticoids if you can. So your neurologist may tell you to give it. Give it if you suspect primary angiitis, right? That's an inflammatory problem for which steroids may have an effect. But there's some, not great data, but some data that suggests that steroids and RCVS may actually worsen outcomes. So you shouldn't do it. Okay, so RCVS. Think of it with a thunderclap headache, abrupt onset, especially those with a negative workup for subarachnoid. Look for focal neurologic signs, which are common. Search for the underlying trigger. Have a low threshold to get the angiographic study and treat with a calcium channel blocker. Still good? Okay, we're moving along. We're deep, our sleeves are rolled up in subtle neuro at this point. So let's get to case number three. This is a 76-year-old woman presenting with dizziness, double vision, nausea, and slurred speech. This is everybody's favorite presentation, I think, right? I find that a lot of people tend to be allergic to this chart in the emergency department. Nobody wants to pick up the old and dizzy with non-localizing deficits. Um, but hopefully, you're less so after leaving today. So uh, she's hypertensive. She's uh, in AFib, and she really doesn't look well. Oh, by the way, CAT scan? Yes, no? Yes? Yes. Okay, I should just stop asking. Um, this was read as normal, but I'll, I'll tell you that it's not normal. Okay? I'll draw your attention to this here. This is a dense vessel sign, right? So this patient has an abnormality, 
and it was easily missed. Fortunately, the providers did get a CTA, and it's a little more clear here. People see that? All right. Well, for those that didn't catch it, this will be a little better. Okay. So there is a stoppage in traffic in flow of blood in the posterior circulation. There is a long segment of the basilar artery which is not moving. Okay. So what is this? Not so subtle, but easily missed. This is an acute basilar artery occlusion. Okay. So this is the patient's MRI, and you can see on the diffusion-weighted imaging sequence, there's cytotoxic edema in the brainstem, which, as it should in acute stroke, corresponds as dark on the ADC sequence. This differentiates a stroke from another type of lesion, and it's bright on the flare. So it's a subacute stroke at this point. In terms of our incidence, it really accounts for about 1% of all strokes, but it is scary. 76 to 91% mortality. This is about as bad as it can get. The problem is, is that symptoms are often atypical and mild in the beginning, uh, but patients often have a dynamic course and will abruptly worsen. This woman may have been sitting in your waiting room and not even brought back this uh, when she suddenly deteriorates and needs an airway. Uh, that can happen. Uh, key here is recanalization early. You want to uh, try your best to achieve a good functional outcome, but this is unusual in these patients. So there are really three different phenotypes in basal artery occlusion. There's those which progress more gradually over time. Uh, those aren't the ones that we'll typically see. Then there are those with a fluctuating course, like a, a, a posterior TIA or a, a vertebral basilar insufficiency. And then there's the unfortunate few who, who present sudden and severe and, uh, and often do not do well. In terms of symptoms here, it's really all over the map, but anything that can localize to the posterior fossa. Um, interestingly, unilateral weakness tends to be the most common. This is probably a function of uh, how we were able to pick up these, these patients. Uh, but think of dizziness, uh, dysarthric, unorganized speech, uh, visual disturbance, headache, nausea, and vomiting, or alterations in, in consciousness when in the brainstem. And that, those all clearly depend on where the lesion is. What's frustrating about basilar artery occlusion is that, you know, outcomes have been heterogeneous, right? So these, these are the different series that have been published. And uh, you can see on the left part of the series, these light green bars, this is the rate of recanalization. And then on the stacked bars, the dark green corresponds to uh, a good outcome. So you can see that the outcomes are all over the map, and the rate of recanalization is all over the map, and they don't seem to correlate with one another, um, which is what's made this such a frustrating thing uh, for both emergency physicians and neurologists. It does appear that recanalization improves mortality, but it hasn't yet corresponded to improvements in functional outcome on the whole. Certainly, if you don't recanalize, your outcomes are typically poor, but even among those that do recanalize, uh, outcomes still tend to remain poor, which makes this data less strong. So is it an elbow? Certainly, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the revolution that's taking place in endovascular stroke treatment this year, thanks to all of these studies, which you see at the bottom. These six studies uh, all showed an overwhelming treatment effect. And this is the, these blue bars are the absolute difference in groups between those that received TPA and embolectomy versus those that just received TPA alone. And it looks as though the higher the rate of recanalization, the stronger treatment effect. So you could imply 
that this should, have, this should be the case for basilar artery occlusions as well. Unfortunately, to my knowledge, none of these six studies included posterior strokes. So these were all anterior circulation strokes, so we just don't know. Certainly there are some clues to a good outcome, and that is uh, presenting deficits that are more minor, the younger age of the patient, uh, a shorter or more distal occlusion, uh, and our ability to recanalize faster. Um, but a lot of this is patient-specific, their ability to collateralize their vessels, to maintain autoregulation, and, and some degree of ischemic preconditioning may make them more resilient to uh, periods of time where they're hypoperfusing. I would argue that it appears the aspect score. The aspect score isn't something we need to know, but our radiologists use it to grade the completeness of an infarct, right? So it's a 10-point score with the higher numbers actually being better as opposed to worse. And uh, the aspect score really portends a, a risk of, uh, or, uh, of poor outcome better than uh, symptom duration, if that makes sense. And that, that again, goes to the point of people being different with different lengths of time of uh, hypoperfusion. I would say that you should treat it like you do any other stroke with thrombolysis within four and a half hours. In terms of endovascular therapy, this t I would think this gives, the, gives patients the best chance of a meaningful recovery, and some have published case reports of going well beyond the recommended six-hour window, going out to 24 hours or even beyond of symptom duration. These are typically for patients that are locked in and have a very poor prognosis where there's little else to lose. So I would mobilize your endovascular uh, team as fast as possible and treat it as you would any other stroke. Here at the bottom, you see um, a more recent uh, a collection of studies and using the, the, the latest generation um, stent retrievers. And their rates of recanalization are higher, rates of uh, good outcome are higher, and mortality and symptomatic ICH are lower than prior reports. So a signal here of some promising data to come, but the basics trial, which is what we're all going to be waiting for, should probably enroll through 2017. So we're not going to have matching posterior data uh, until then. Anecdotally, this is, uh, I presented this at my institution a year or two ago. These were four uh, cases of basilar occlusion that we saw uh, within one quarter, so not that uncommon. And what I just want to draw your attention to is that all of these patients need an emergent airway. One of them was intubated in the field, one upon arrival, but the other two presented fairly minor and uh, precipitously worsened while under our care. So you need to be vigilant of this. And outcomes, as you might expect, were low, uh, poor, two of the four dying, one improving, and one having uh, being locked in. The last thing I'll say about this is that uh, is this entity known as basilar fits. So they mimic status epilepticus, but are generally refracti refractive to um, uh, the anti-epileptics. It's abnormal shaking or jerking or even posturing, which are easily mistaken for seizure activity, and it might cause us to delay our workup for stroke as a possibility. These patients present altered, decreased responsiveness with these abnormal movements, and we might go down a pathway of status. Just know that this can exist in the posterior stroke, and here's an example of that. This was a real case uh, that we saw. One of our residents uh, presented it, and this, this person had the basilar fits. So I want you to think of post, uh, basal artery occlusion in those with posterior symptoms, especially visual or ocular findings, dysarthric speech, ataxia, 
Know that your CT scan is often normal. You're not going to see that dense basal or sign much of the time. Patients abruptly worsen, and angio is diagnostic, and early recanalization is probably the best chance for a meaningful recovery, but our data is lacking there. And know about basal or fits. Okay, we've gotten through three cases. Everybody still doing okay? All right, I'm going to see how I'm doing for time. All right. So case number four, now back to a young person. We have a 33-year-old woman presenting with blurred vision, headache, unsteadiness, and progressive confusion. So you can see a lot of these patients present very similarly, right? Headache, vague deficits. Her vital signs are normal. Um, Here's her CAT scan. I won't even ask anymore. I'll give you a little more history. So she's uh, otherwise healthy. She is on an oral contraceptive pill. And about a month ago, she fell off her horse and sustained a concussion. So is this CT scan normal or abnormal? All right, it's abnormal. But I'll, give, I'll get back to it. I'll, I'll show you one more thing. So this is something you can look at using this device called an ophthalmoscope, which resides at the head of the bed. I, I feel as though most of us have forgotten that this is something we can perform at the bedside. Uh, but it's really a fundamental part of the neurologic exam. Um, I know we're all interested in subarachnoid hemorrhage, and I know this subarachnoid hemorrhage decision rule has gained a lot of interest. But know that you're excluded from that rule if you have papilledema. So we should be performing this with some regularity. And, um, I encourage you all to do so. So this person has papilledema. You see there's, no sh there's a loss of sharpness of the optic disc, okay? So now let's go back to the imaging study. So she's got this finding and papilledema, headache, blurred vision, confusion, vomiting, right? So what's that? Everybody see that? That's the dense triangle sign. And what's that indicative of? Right. Cerebral venous thrombosis. Okay. So this can occur just about anywhere. All right. Anywhere along the, the, the sinuses and the, and the venous system in the brain, it appears as though the superior sagittal sinus is the most common uh, source or in the transverse sinus, uh, as in this case. Um, the straight sinus thrombosis is particularly concerning, as all of these are, but uh, that common, commonly presents with alterations in mental status. We just need to know um, about its existence. Now, it accounts really for about half of 1% of all strokes, primarily in young women, not exclusively, of course. And headache is really the most common symptom far and away, and it's, it's a product of increased intracranial pressure. This is causing an obstructive hydrocephalus, and, and she's now symptomatic of that, right? Right. Okay. What are the risk factors? So any prothrombotic state... Uh, pregnancy, uh, oral contraceptive use, a history of cancer, recent infection or trauma are among the things you want to, to think of as risk factors. Short-term mortality is reasonably high, up to 15%, and there is a delayed risk of ICH from that same cascade that I showed you with press. So this causes a loss of autoregulation, blood-brain barrier breakdown, plasma leaking into the, the, the brain, um, and, and risk of, of hemorrhage. So your diagnostic test of choice is a CTV or an MRV. This is essentially performed the same way as a CTA. It's just the contrast timing is a little bit delayed. 
There's been some suggestion that a D-dimer uh, can actually be fairly predictive of these patients. And published reports report the sensitivity up to 94% and the specificity, which I question, up to 90%. Um, but it hasn't gained widespread popularity, of course, because I don't think we know who to apply this on. I think if we started to send a D-dimer on all of our undifferentiated headaches, we would, we would then get one as a result. So um, it has made it so far as to getting into the guidelines from the American Heart Association as something to consider if you suspect a CVT, uh, but not to rely on it if you have a high suspicion because you can be falsely negative or falsely positive. Uh, the problem here is as of yet, to my knowledge, there's really no validated prediction rule for using it. So if anybody has the answer, I, I, I'd be interested to hear but I, I can't sort of advocate for its use routinely as of now. In terms of management, uh, anticoagulation is really the mainstay, at least a few months of it. And if patients are uh, severely symptomatic or worsen while on anticoagulation, that's your indication for uh, catheter-directed fibrinolysis or uh, clot retrieval, okay? And this is, uh, this is from the AHA recommendations. So I want you to think of a CVT in patients uh, with risk factors presenting with headache, potentially seizure, papilledema, and gradually progressive deficits. Uh, may occur after trauma, have a high suspicion if there's other risk factors, know that it's associated with delayed intracerebral hemorrhage, and that venography is diagnostic, and you want to anticoagulate these patients. Case number five. This is that of a 55-year-old man who has intermittent headaches uh, over some time, but now he's got vision loss, vomiting, gait ataxia, and decreased responsiveness. So he's been living with headaches, but now there's some new symptoms which have evolved, which uh, is what prompted the presentation to the ER. His blood pressure's high, a little tachycardic, and it's thought that that's probably because he looks so uncomfortable. We get a CAT scan, and this is obviously abnormal, right? So what do we see here? So there's ventriculomegaly. Yep. We see enlargement of the ventricles and uh, what looks to be cerebral edema. We also have this abnormality up here along the midline. So here we have a guy with headaches and vomiting, now with vision loss, ataxia, alteration in his level of arousal, and a midline hyperdensity along the interventricular foramina and ventricular megaly. Does anybody know what this is? This is the colloid cyst. Okay. So cyst, again, poorly named entities I'm talking about today, right? Cyst, no big deal. It's just a cyst. Not so much. So this is a benign tumor but has fatal consequences, right? It's essentially a ball valve. You can, you can liken it to an ornamental shrub growing in your front lawn that, as what has happened to me uh, Christmas Eve a couple of years ago, the roots slowly dug into the sewage system out to the street, and we woke up Christmas morning knee-deep in sewage in our basement from my extended family, which happened to be visiting. So that was wonderful. So that, that's the, it's the same sort of thing here. It's fine until it's not fine, and then it's catastrophic. Okay, so you can look at the little uh, animation here. Ooh. This, uh, this red dot signifies your cyst, and it was going to grow. It just didn't, didn't seem to work. Okay, so what does it do? It causes abrupt uh, hydrocephalus, and it can cause brainstem herniation. Now, people that are symptomatic 
about a third of them will abruptly deteriorate and may die as of this. So this is absolutely an indication for emergent uh, extraventricular drainage, okay? So this needs, the, you, you can control uh, elevations into intracranial pressure, but aside from getting this patient to the neurosurgeon, our role is limited. In fact, I maybe I should have made his heart rate slower, so it would have been like the Cushing's response, hypertension, bradycardia, signs of increased ICP. That's what you're gonna see in patients with this. Oh, there it is, okay. All right, so the problem in my mind is that we can mistake this. The patients often have progressively worsening symptoms. The mental status changes may be sort of um, subacute. We may liken this to worsening dementia. Uh, we may think this person has NPH. We may think this is secondary to an ingestion of some kind. Uh, we'd be lucky to mistake this for a posterior stroke because at least in those patients, we're getting a CAT scan. I just want us to be vigilant of this dangerous chameleon, okay? So think of colloid cysts in patients that present with intermittent headaches, non-localizing symptoms with impairments in mental status. Um, they abruptly deteriorate. Um, you may incidentally find it on a CAT scan, and if you do, you want to direct them to a neurosurgeon so this can be tracked. And if they're symptomatic, well, now this is an emergency and they need an EVD. Okay. We're down to our last two cases. Our next case is a 40-year-old woman presenting with headache, of course, like everybody else, and photophobia. And the backstory with her is that she, she tells you she's 40 and she's well-appearing, but she says she has a history of uh, TIAs and that TIAs run in her family. Everyone has strokes in her family. You get a sense that she's uh, got a flair for the dramatic and maybe there's some behavioral component and you're, you're sort of dismissing that. Her vital signs look okay. And you were gonna be a good steward of healthcare resources and do like we're supposed to do and not image young, healthy people with primary headache, but this history of TIA, something wasn't quite right, just made you curious, and so you got a CAT scan. So I apologize for the, the size of the images here, but um, you know what you're looking at essentially, this looks like a CAT scan of uh, a much older person, right? So you see these hypodensities? This is what you often see reported by the radiologist, the non-specific age-related white matter disease that we all sort of just skip past, right? Um, but you shouldn't have that in a young, healthy 40-year-old woman. So she's got uh, uh, periventricular white matter disease. It's called leukoariosis, um, and she has no cerebrovascular disease risk factors as far as we know. So what's this? Here's another look. This, well, yeah, it, it, could, it could be a vascular migraine, but what we're talking, this is the acronym of all acronyms. Are we ready? This is CATASIL. All right, this is cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarcts and leukoencephalopathy. Okay. So right, so a lot of, yeah. So we're, this is one of those conditions I wanted you to be aware of. This isn't presenting as a devastating neurologic emergency, but this is a bad thing and it's a real thing and we need to know about it. Um, so, so what is it? So Catacil is, it's actually a genetic disease, autosomal dominant. It's uh, caused by a notch three gene mutation on chromosome 19. These patients all have a, a history of migraine headaches typically. They often have TIAs and strokes. 
Um, and there's usually a component of a behavioral or a neuropsych sort of flavor to these cases. And, and a number of patients have early onset dementia. This is the T2 flare sequence on the MRI, which clearly shows all this white matter disease, right? Okay. And the problem here is in uh, lymphatic drainage. So the brain doesn't have its own lymphatic channels. So proteins are eliminated along the basement membranes of uh, the perivascular space. And what happens is that you get a deposition of GOM protein, granular osmiophilic material in these patients, which sort of clogs the, uh, the drainage of, of uh, protein byproducts. And that's what causes this sort of junk to build up in the periventricular white matter disease. Here's another look. And I mentioned it, I put, I put this in here because I think it's an easy area for us to be fooled. This is actually one of the major causes of stroke in young people. And we should be aware that it exists. Uh, once someone manifests symptoms uh, of this, uh, they're going to have recurrent strokes and TIAs up to 85% of the time. And they're usually the small volume strokes, the lacunar infarcts that we often see caused by the small vessel disease rather than the large vessels. Management is the same as it would be any other stroke, secondary stroke prevention, but they certainly need to be directed towards a neurologist, and they need to be aware that they have an autosomal dominant genetic disease. Their, this patient's family needs to be aware. So think of it in, in patients with young stroke and TIA, and, and uh, have a, have, just give it some consideration. If you've got the constellation of, of migraines, behave, neurobehavioral symptoms, uh, and someone who reports a family history of early strokes, and you see these, this abnormality on a CT scan. Okay? Almost done. I appreciate your attention. Last case. 72-year-old man presenting with uh, episodes of headache and transient episodes of left-sided weakness. So he came in acutely after a 30-minute episode of left arm and left leg weakness. It's, it, his stroke scale was zero. We didn't appreciate any focal neurologic deficits on his exam. So this seemed like all intents and purposes to be a, a straightforward TIA, but with some episodes of intermittent headaches for which he does carry a history of migraines. Here are his vital signs, and here's his CAT scan. Again, I apologize for the size. Does anybody see anything abnormal here? So a little something here. You see these small little spots of uh, hyperintensity on the CAT scan and the uh, uh, scattered throughout the cortex. See it a little bit better here. Everybody see that? Okay. So it seems that this is a patient that has a TIA, but is presenting with micro hemorrhages, which seems odd, right? Right, and it is. But this is this is actually common. Here's the MRI that he had, and you can see on the GRE sequence. So this is the sequence that would look best for acute blood and you see the dark spots correspond with acute blood in the cerebral cortex. So he's having microbleeds, which are manifesting symptoms of TIA. So here's the issue. So we, we didn't really look at the CAT scan that carefully. He, we figured it was a TIA. We didn't see any major hemorrhage. He goes to the floor. He gets treated as a TIA. We discharge him on an antiplatelet, and now he comes back two months later as a code stroke. Here's his CAT scan this time, which is a little less subtle, right? So we see frontal 
hemorrhage. And this is, this is not so micro anymore, right? But what's interesting is you see that it tracks all the way out to the periphery. This isn't your deep uh, hypertensive bleed. This isn't your, your hypertensive spontaneous ICH. This is a peripheral hemorrhage, right? And someone who had micro hemorrhages. So what does he have? So this is CAA. This is cerebral amyloid angiopathy, okay? Now, this is that other condition that I wanted you all to be aware of. It doesn't present as an emergency, but it portends high risk, and these patients may worsen, and we need to know about it. It also is a problem with protein elimination. As opposed to GOM pro protein with catacil, in CAA, it's amyloid beta, the same protein uh, implicated in Alzheimer's disease, right? So there is a genetic association with the APOE2 and E4 alleles, but this is quite common in the elderly population, and these patients have microbleeds, which are easy to miss, and they progress onto low bar ICH. They have a 700% higher incidence of hemorrhage than the general population, okay? So that's why, if you can, you want to avoid anticoagulants and antiplatelet agents for them. This TIA was from a microbleed, not from an ischemic event, so an antiplatelet isn't the right answer, okay? So I want you to think of CAA in elderly patients with headache, fluctuating TIAs, maybe dementia, uh, look for cerebral microbleeds and know that they have a, they portend a high risk of ICH. Use caution with blood thinners. Of course, there's, uh, there's instances where, uh, where they may be indicated, but it's, it's certainly you need to consider it. So let's put it all together. So we've talked about seven things today. We've, it took me way too long, by the way. Thank you for laughing. So we've got press, RCVS. Uh, we talked about the basilar artery occlusion. Uh, we talked about uh, venous thrombosis. Uh, we talked about um, colloid cyst and catacil and CAA, right? So hopefully we're now a little bit more comfortable. Here are the take-home points. Press and RCVS are dangerous causes of headache that are easily missed and not entirely reversible, okay? Venous thrombosis and colloid cyst of the third ventricle uh, produce the headache secondary to elevations in ICP often cause clinical deterioration, and we need to be vigilant and, and be aggressive about diagnosis. Basilar artery occlusions are terribly frightening. They're the most deadly form of strokes and can present with vague symptoms. Catacil is a major cause of ischemic stroke in the young, and they present atypically. And CAA is common and portends a high risk of ICH. So I hope, in closing, that we're all a little bit more comfortable occupying that space between emergency medicine and neurology. I think we have time for a couple of questions, and then I'll stay up here if there are any others. Thank you very much.